Welcome to Continuum, the International Business Council podcast, where each episode we sit down with an incredible member of the IBC community, dive in, and learn from their journey. This is John Fitzgerald, and welcome to another edition of Continuum. Today, I am very honored to have Gary Gullett with us. We're going to learn about Gary. I've had the privilege of of knowing Gary for almost 18 years, and while I've known him, I think there's a lot that I don't know. So, Gary, welcome to Continuum. We're very pleased to have you. Look forward to our upcoming uh, conversation. John, yeah, it's quite an honor to be here. Thank you so much for asking. Oh, no. it's uh, Like I said, it's, it's my privilege, my honor to have you with us. So, Gary, to start, can you tell us just a little bit about yourself, just some of your background, and, and if you want to go way back to, you know, where you were born, you know, where you grew up, et cetera, and then our paths crossed like I said, 18 years ago or so, but, you know, a little bit about your career and we'll get into some more detail with that. Sure, John. Yeah, I was born in Iowa. And so I grew up out there and um, my grandparents were farmers and, and my dad owned a lumber yard. Um, but we spent a lot of time hunting and being out on the farm and in the open areas. And I'd go out to my grandparents every weekend. And then uh, as I grew up, I went to the University of Northern Iowa uh, attended high school in Newton, Iowa, home of the Maytag at that particular time, and then um, went to the University of Northern Iowa for my undergraduate degree, uh, measured in business out there, and started immediately out of college with John Deere, who worked there for, uh, I don't know, seven or eight years, something like that, was a program manager for those folks, and then took a job out in Lima, Ohio with Westinghouse and was a program manager out there and started doing aircraft programs. So uh, we basically made high-density power systems for aircraft and had inverters and generators and those kinds of things that we were supplying. And in the meantime, um, other companies uh, took a look at us. So I was working out there for Westinghouse, and a company named Sunstrand in Rockford, Illinois, bought our division of Westinghouse. we were hit competitors and going head to head on a lot of things. And they decided that trying to get together would be a little bit better of an operation. So at that particular time, they moved, there were about 600 of us out at Westinghouse in Lima, Ohio, and they moved about 80 of us up here to Rockford. And it was quite an educational experience for me, just changing companies. Uh, but I had some of the same programs and some of the same responsibilities uh, for some years there. And then United Technologies bought Sunstrand. And so I had worked for three different companies, but basically had the same job. And it was, uh, you know, each one came with its own challenges and benefits and those kind of things. And then a few years after that, uh, moved to Motorola and became a program manager for a more global operation and was responsible for some of the um, international plants that we had um, in we had, we had several, you know, in China and some offshore capabilities. That was at a time when a lot of people were outsourcing. And so did a lot of traveling to different sites in different places and uh, met you while I was on that particular job, John. So, And, and Gary, just for our listeners, you know, Motorola's big company, you were based out of, were you in Arlington Heights or Schaumburg, Illinois? Schaumburg, Illinois, yes. Okay. And in... You know, people talk about commute. So talk about a little bit about your commute uh, when you were for Motorola. Yeah, I lived in Byron, Illinois, which is uh, just south of Rockford, if you know the geography out there. So it's about an 80 mile one way 
commute into Motorola. And that was at a time when working from home wasn't as accepted as it is today. And so I would drive in every day and spend a lot of the time because I had offshore responsibilities, a lot of the time on those drives, on phone calls or, you know, doing something um, that I felt was productive at that particular time. But you're right, driving down Interstate 90, um, going through all the toll booths and and uh, sometimes the weather. At that time, I was also officiating basketball. So we had some had some long drives and some really interesting weather. And I'm still to this day amazed at that. I, I used to think I had a long commute and it's nothing compared to what you were doing um, on a one-way basis, let alone round trip every day when you weren't traveling. So thanks. Yeah. Um, and then I, I kind of interrupted you because what's intriguing to me is that um, you received your MBA from Notre Dame while you were at Motorola and then you, you left Motorola and you're, you're, you're doing now what I consider kind of a dream. And, and can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. When we, um, so Motorola is a very good company. All those companies that I just mentioned were very good companies and really had an enjoyable time working for them, but had an opportunity um, to start our own company. So Liz and I talked a long time about that because, you know, the sustain the sustainability, I'm going to call it of a, of a job, like with a company with Motorola is, is, you know, not questioned. Um, and so we were talking about starting our own company. Um, we had worked for uh, a long time at the local college level. So we taught photography while we were doing some of those other things at a community college here called Rock Valley uh, Community College. And so we had been teaching photography for since 1999. So the MBA at Notre Dame was an experience that just changed my life. And it, it opened up so many thought processes and so many, uh, so much introspection, I guess, um, that it gave us the opportunity to talk about and gave me the confidence personally to be able to make that move and start a new company. And um, it was, it was not without intrepidation. And so Liz and I spent some time doing that and she was a hundred percent behind whatever the decision was at that particular time. So that's basically how we got to this. And today we're, we're a safari company. So it's the adventure safari network is the name of the company today. Uh, back in 1999, when we were teaching photography at rock Valley college, we didn't envision at all doing anything like we're doing today. And uh, today we lead safaris in Africa, Alaska, and India fairly routinely as long as, uh, as well as some other places, I should say. And um, that's kind of what we're doing today. Gary, if you think back to you know, it, when you started with John Deere and then you fast forward to today with Adventure Safari Network, you know, what's the continuum in there? What, what are you still, what are you passionate about? What were you passionate about then and still continue today? What, in essence, what drives you? Well, I, you know, maybe things that drive me today are different than what drove me at that particular time, but the passions are the same, John. And so we've always enjoyed photography. Liz was a wedding photography for 20, uh, wedding photographer, excuse me, for 25 years. And um, I had taken photography in my undergraduate training and always enjoyed it and always loved it. And photography's changed so much over the years uh, that we were thinking we may had some may have some skill sets that might be helpful to other people, and that's why we started teaching. We team taught that class together, uh, 
And as we grew with that particular college, with Rock Valley College, it became apparent that it was more, there was more of a need there than we had originally thought. And so we began to develop other classes along with uh, the basic digital photography is what we started with. And we developed up to 20 classes, John, um, over about a five-year period of time. And we began to, began to market that to other colleges. And so other area community colleges, you know, like Elgin Community College and, and um, several of the others out here, Freeport has one. Um, there, there are several around that we were working with at the time. So we started almost running the photography programs at those different colleges for the community education part of it. This isn't, you know, students. These are basically adult learners that want to learn more about photography. So we started hiring um, instructors to, you know, that were in each of the local areas. For example, Crystal Lake has one of those colleges and we hired instructors from those areas or Elgin or, you know, any one of those areas that I just mentioned. And so we ended up with 20 some classes that we were trying to teach at different colleges. And it really became more than that because as people took more photography classes, they began to get more sophisticated in their understanding of photography and they asked for certain things. And somebody started asking, I remember this vividly saying, why don't we take a a trip, you know, this weekend, let's go on a photo trip and go up to Chicago Botanic Gardens. And then somebody else said, well, let's go to Door County or let's go out to Galena. And so it started to become something that we were doing fairly routinely for those classes to support those classes. And we had uh, between 20 and 30 students in each of those classes. So we had a pretty good base uh, to ask people, hey, would you like to go out to Galena for the weekend and and uh, take photos? And then somebody, John, later said, wow, why don't we go to Alaska? You know, and we hadn't even thought of anything outside of of the local area and um, started to begin to think of some of those things. And I think because at that particular time, I was doing so much traveling with Motorola, you know, it didn't scare me to go do that or to generate contracts in those areas with suppliers or with some of those things. So looking back on it, I think because each of those other experiences, you know, with John Deere, Westinghouse and United Technologies and Motorola, each of those companies had uh, facets to those jobs that really helped me um, have the confidence, I guess, to be able to move forward in something like this. Do you still teach at all or or put curriculum together? We do. So we've got three revenue streams. Um, One of them is through the community colleges. Uh, The second is basically, and and it's tied to that, but it's, it's selling the photography that we do on these trips. And so we get revenue from that as well. And then we have our safari business. And the safari business is broken down into a couple different aspects. Regional safaris, where we'll take bus trips, primarily seniors, on a five-state area. And so we'll go to Michigan, Wisconsin, Iowa, all the adjoining states with Illinois. And we'll do things like the National Hot Air Balloon uh, Festival in Indianola, Iowa, or we'll go for a weekend up to Door County or, you know, something like that. I mean, these are relatively simple, short two or three day excursions. And um, so the safaris are broken out down into what we call regional safaris and then national or international safaris, which is, 
you know, the bigger ones that I mentioned a few minutes ago. So those three revenue streams provide the fundamental uh, income for the company. I have to ask, you know, back in, in March 20, when the pandemic hit, how did that impact and affect you, Liz, your wife and, and your business businesses? Well, we were, uh, the business went absolutely flat. All of our cans- classes were canceled um, at that particular time. Nobody was having classes. Um, we had many safaris scheduled that had to be delayed or canceled. And we went through a significant amount of um, negotiation with our suppliers at that time because people had paid for these once in a lifetime experiences, I'm going to call them, but, you know, very uh, expensive things. These are $10,000 a person kind of things. Um, So we had a lot of money on the table with them. All those safaris were canceled. Um, All of our photo sales stopped. And, um, you know, we've had some real good success with some of the photo sales. There are two or three galleries in Africa that carry our photos. And um, just in the last couple of years, I mean, I'm saying this just to kind of give you a sense for it, but um, we had two or three photos, not too many, but enough to give us uh, a little bit of a foothold that sold for over $10,000 each. And when I say that, I'm I'm talking about photos that are, you know, four meters long, you know, to put it into there. So you're talking about a 15 foot photo, um, eight feet high. It's going to go in a conference room. It's going to go into a hotel somewhere, you know, those are the kinds of things. And, and so I get like $1,500 for that, you know, but, but the guy who's got the distribution channel can do very well with it because there aren't that many people that sell that type of artwork. And so it's not like we're getting rich on that particular part of the business, but it's an aspect that gives us a foothold. And actually, we've got a book now um, that we're going to put out. We've put out a couple small books um, and we've done some things like uh, clinic calendars for the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, you know, where they printed 75,000 copies for for their uh, constituents. Uh, but the photo business is becoming more a part of what we're doing now because we've been to so many places that are so interesting. And we've had an opportunity now to develop a library where some of those images are useful to people. And um, and we have a very good editor that takes photos that are no more than average in some cases, makes them very nice and, and makes them appealing to people. So those kinds of things are the things that we're looking at for the future. And we've got another book that will be coming out next year, or at least that's the schedule, if we can get it done, um, about Africa. It's a very large format book. Um, and so we're very excited about being able to do something like that. Gary, what do you think it takes to be successful? It's such an interesting question, John. And um one of the things we've always done in addition to working hard is to really try to hire good people and most of the time take the recommendation of those people because the people that we've been working with are all, for example, all of our safari leaders have master's degrees. They're very competent people. They've done so many things in life before they came to us. And the Safaris that we do in the local areas, like downtown Chicago, we hire students for, and these are primarily motivated students that are coming out of colleges that have photography programs. Um, But that's such a small part of our business now, but it does provide us the opportunity to interact with some people that are 
up and coming and very excited about um, being part of an organization that has uh, more than one opportunity, let's say. And so trying to hire the right people, John, is something I think that would be high on our list. And we try to be dedicated to those people and really pay attention to what those people have to say, because we've learned so much from them. What, what do you think holds people back from you know, doing what you did, taking that chance and, and starting something on your own? It's a really difficult um, thing to quit a job that's very secure and that you feel like you're good at and go to something that is totally new, I'm going to call it, because many aspects of it were new, even though we had a fundamental basis of understanding of many of the things. Um, So I think the fear of moving forward and sometimes maybe lacking the confidence of, of just being able to take that step and we always felt like even if we failed at that, we could go back to what we had been doing. And we were relatively young, you know, I mean, 45 when we started teaching and, and uh, you know, 55 by the time things really got going. Um, so we felt like we still had some things to offer and we could go back into um, some of the things that we were doing prior to that. So I, I would say fear holds people back and it's really something that I would encourage people not to uh, be held back by because there are just so many options in life. And if one path doesn't work, you know, another door seems to open almost always and things work out. And and so I guess just having the confidence to be able to take those steps. I, w- I want to switch gears and I want to talk a little bit about leadership. And in this this varied career that you've had going back in John Deere, Westinghouse, et cetera, Sunstrand, which, you know, big public or privately held company at the time. Any people that that have had an influence on you from a leadership perspective um, and and kind of the the why and the how, you know, how did that person impact you? There are so many people that come to mind that have had an impact on me, John, and one in particular that I've always thought back to many, many times. And when I was 20 years old, a student at the University of Northern Iowa, and I wanted to start officiating, um, I, there was a gentleman named Bernie Sagaw, and Bernie was the head of the Iowa High School Athletic Association. Uh, at the time, I didn't know who Bernie was, but I've come to know since then a lot about Bernie. But I stopped in on a Saturday morning. He was in Boone, Iowa. The, the administration office was in Boone, Iowa. And you can imagine an athletic association in a state in the Midwest It's all administrative jobs. Um, You know, you're dealing with schools and you're dealing with officials and students, but it's all administrative. They aren't making anything. It's not like a production facility or something like that. So I stopped over there on a Saturday morning. I happened to be driving through there and I had been officiating at that time for one year and I'd always heard Bernie's name, uh, but I didn't know anything about the association, actually, but I really wanted to be good at officiating. And so I stopped at the office in Boone, Iowa, and there was one car in the parking lot. This is on Saturday morning. And I went in, I I went to the door and walked in. It was unlocked and Bernie was in his office. I didn't even know who he was. Uh, uh, And he led the association. I mean, didn't know him by sight or anything else. But Bernie came out and talked to me and I told him that I was an official and I, you know, I just wanted to stop in and see the office. 
And John, he took me around the office as if, you know, we were old friends. And he, he said, oh, this is where we make our copies. Uh, this is where we file our officials' applications. This is where we... And he showed me every aspect of that office. Now, Bernie Sagal was a guy who, on a national scale, he was on the National Rules Committee for Basketball, very well-respected guy, had the whole association to run. And there's a college student stopping in on a Saturday morning to ask him questions that really, you know, didn't help him at all in any way. But he took 45 minutes or an hour to show me around the office to answer my questions, very elemental, elementary at that time. And that has had such an impact on me over the years where here's a guy who didn't know me at all. Um, and I was unable to do anything for him or help him in any way. And he helped me so much just by showing me around the office and taking the time. And he taught me uh, during that interaction that every single person is important and he treated every single person as important and and he didn't have to do any of that. And I'm sure he had a ton of work to do. And later when I found out what a national um, treasure Bernie Sago was and thought back on him taking that time, it's just had a tremendous impact on me in all my dealings with students today, uh, with, with anybody that I deal with, uh, and and I think of Bernie often. I've got a book that I sort of dedicated to Bernie, and I get a lot of autographs in that of people that have impacted me over time. So I've got a, you know, quite a few autographs of people that have impacted my life in other ways, you know, by showing their leadership. And I've had each one of them maybe sign that book that I've dedicated to Bernie. That's great insight. Thank you, it, Gary. What what do you do to continue to grow and develop as a leader? Well, there are several things. As I mentioned, we have a lot of people on our staff that are leaders by themselves. And I learn a lot from those particular people. But there are also, we attend seminars um, probably once every two years, not as often as we should or that I would like. Um, small business kinds of things, John, where we talk about things from motivation of people as well as, um, you know, financial aspects of things. And so anytime we can do that, and I also, since I'm personally a photographer, I, I try to attend one or two photo sessions every year where we've got a speaker on a national level, somebody like an Art Wolf or, you know, someone who is very accomplished in that particular area and try to listen to them speak about what it is that motivates them and how they go about their business. Interesting. I wanted to talk also about the IBC, which is really the, the crux of why we're here. And when we talk about the IBC, so big picture, our mission, we want to drive global change through business and, and questions and ask pertinent, insightful questions. And from a mission perspective, I mean, the IBC mission is to create a world where the business environment serves as a principal force for the common good, not just locally, but globally. So can you speak just a little bit to what that means to you in regard to that, our, our vision, you know, how you create a world where the business community it really acts as a, as a principled force for good? It, it's so important. And, and nowadays, especially, John, I mean, the IBC has a mission. I'm just going to use an example to talk to that, if you don't mind. United Technologies and Raytheon recently merged Raytheon was required, acquired by United Technologies. They've come together 
you know, a huge corporation. And with all that's going on in the world right now, um, they have a lot of business units or had a lot of business units in Russia. And with, with what's going on in Ukraine and the rest of the world, and a company like that had just came out and made a statement that we are no longer going to be doing business in Russia ever. And they've pulled a lot. And it's, it's a significant decision because there was a lot of income coming from that particular region. A lot of resources have been developed. So when you take when you have companies at that level that are working to do exactly what the IBC promotes, um, it really shows and it underscores, I think, the effect of trying to conduct business in an ethically um, correct manner. And when those people are doing things that send a message, maybe on a smaller scale than what a government would do, but it does impact a lot of lives and a lot of people see that. And so business has a leadership role in many things that we're doing around the world. And that's just one small example. There are tons of those kinds of examples. Um, and we, on a smaller scale, try to follow some of those principles. But the IBC definitely can impact things and it has impacted things for that. If you were to receive a request today that this coming May, five, seven months from now, you were asked to speak to the graduating class to give a commencement address. What would you say to those graduates who, you know, everybody has a desire to make an impact in the world, but don't know where to start? Uh, how would you address that? Most of the graduating uh, commencements that I've been involved with or that I've read about, those kinds of things, are uh, motivational to say the least. But I would, I would probably talk about perseverance and talk about following a dream. And if a person can persevere through many of the things that, that come up in life, usually things are better on the other side. And sometimes we forget that when we're in the middle of the darkest hours. Uh, but I think I would promote, uh, promote perseverance as a common theme or as the main theme of uh, any kind of an address like that. Perfect. What do you believe it takes to have a great and meaningful life? It's, it's so many, uh, so many things are defined differently by those kind of things, John. But for me personally, I think having a family that's um, tight knit and being, I guess, together where you can share some of these experiences is something that I find very, very meaningful and I think is very important uh, to my particular life. And so we feel like we're doing a lot of good for a lot of other people. When we go on these safaris, these are lifetime things for people. And uh, sometimes there are teachable moments on those for either their kids or even for the adults, you know, along the path. And so we can share some things because of some of the experiences we've been fortunate to have. We can share some things that sometimes carry lessons with those and and we try to do that in a family atmosphere, whether we're on a safari or whether we're with our own family. And we try to keep those things in mind. But it's I think having a close knit family is really important. So kind of a, a tangent off of that. What are you most proud of so far in your life? Well, our two kids, uh, Jeff and Michelle, are very successful people in their own right. And uh, it was one of our greatest privileges. Liz and I have talked about it several times to be able to to raise those kids and 
Uh, both of them went to Ohio State, so on football Saturdays we can't even talk, you know, because because <laughs> we have this Notre Dame Ohio State discussion all the time. Our son swam for Ohio State, um, you know, so he was, uh, you know, involved at an athletic level that I only dreamed of, you know, when I was young. Um, and our daughter was vice president of students out there, so they're both even at the college level they were somewhat. Um, successful, I think. And since then in their professional lives have grown quite a bit. And Jeff's living out in Colorado and Michelle's in North Carolina. And um, they, Michelle has two kids. And so I guess the thing we're most proud of right now in life are our two kids. Fantastic. Fantastic. Um, and two kind of more general, easy questions for you. And I know you mentioned you publish your own books in regard to your photography and the safaris. But do you ever get a chance to read? And if so, any books you could recommend to our listeners? Well, most of the most of the reading that I do, John, is around um, the destinations that we've got. So when we're talking about, uh, you know, going down to Africa, Nelson Mandela was a great force down there. He's a great leader. and um, Books about him or Gandhi um, have been of particular interest to me because those two guys uh, provided leadership for a whole generation and for multiple generations to come. And we talk about those guys in our safaris. We have several different objectives, but education is one of them, education and cultural. I mean, we look at all those aspects. And so when we happen to be in a place like South Africa and you've got somebody like Nelson Mandela. I mean, on these trips, we talk, we've talked to his prison guard. You know, Nelson Mandela was a guy who was imprisoned for his political beliefs for 27 years. And uh, there are plenty of books on Nelson Mandela, but he came out of there to be a president that had uh, of South Africa that had such, and I don't think he would have developed actually his perspective without being imprisoned for 27 years. Uh, but to answer your question, books about Nelson Mandela, and I don't have a title, I'm sorry to give you, uh, books about Gandhi uh, are both um, very worthwhile reads from the standpoint of picking up leadership opportunities, uh, as well as just some of the beliefs that those guys had to pull pulled their cultures together at a given time in history. And my last question, again, very general if you were to receive a hundred dollar, hundred thousand, hundred million dollar check in the mail today, not a hundred thousand, a hundred million dollar check in the mail today, which means you don't have to work at all the rest of your life. What would you do? You know, I saw a poster when I was real young, uh, and that same question was asked, and there was a farmer pictured on there, and he said, "I figure I'd just keep ranching until it was gone." And, uh, you know, we're doing exactly what we want to do in life, John. And so it's it's not always about money. Uh, money is always nice and you have to have enough of it. And we're fortunate. But but I think that we would probably not do many things differently than what we're doing right now, because we've just we've we're just so fortunate and we're really enjoying what we're doing. And that's very refreshing. Thank you. And with that, Gary, we're at the conclusion. I just wanted to take a moment to, again, thank you for your time, your insights. Great to speak to you. Um, you know, I, again, I have a chance to talk to you every now and then as well. But to do this recording and, and be part of our podcast series, I'm really, really privileged. So thank you very much for being with us today. Yeah, John, thanks also for having us on in the uh the IBC. And, and good luck with those objectives going forward. It's very worthwhile. Thank you. Thank you. Have a great day. Thank you for listening today to Continuum. 
the IBC's podcast series. If you enjoyed our conversation, please subscribe so you don't miss our next episode. And for more information about the IBC, visit our website at ouribc.com. That's just O-U-R-I-B-C dot com. Thanks.